What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Mets Legends cast. I'm your host, Rob Pearsall, sipping on a nice chai rooibos tea on this Ooh. cold, cold winter day in New York. Really pretty day, actually. It's like really, really sunny, not a cloud in the sky, but frigid. We're expecting a nor'easter over the weekend, and uh, I really just miss baseball. Um, but I am uh, sipping on this tea, and I am joined by my lovely co-host, Michael Jennings. He is starring today as uh, Pedro Estacio, early Mets starting pitcher from the nice. 2000s. Um, <laughs> And I, of course, am on that same pitching rotation, Jeff D'Amico. Very nice. So we got some 2002 Mets celebrating the 20th anniversary of one of the worst teams I've ever seen. (laughs) So, (laughs) Well, you know, know, I'm good. And Pedro Estacio also spent some time uh, with my now local Colorado Rockies, um, which it is also a sunny but rather cold day out here in Denver. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of nice for once having the same weather, uh, in our two different places. I feel like it's always like dark and dreary, uh, out in New York these days. Yeah, it's been, it's been a, it's been a definitely, it's definitely been a winter. Like, like it's definitely felt like winter this year in New York. Mm-hmm. Like the last couple of years have been a little bit mild, especially last winter. We got a couple snowstorms, but like we've had snow, like, I don't know, like a lot the last, the last like few, few days. And also like a couple weeks, like, even if it's just like a little bit like flurrying, like, a, like, you know, a little bit of accumulation, it'll be like nighttime and I'll look out and I'll be like, Oh, it's actually snowing outside. Um, yeah. And we're supposed to get really hit this weekend. So we'll see. Hopefully Perfect. it's, I, I would say hopefully it's more snow than, than rain. Cause snow is definitely more fun, at least in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, agreed for sure. Um, I'm hoping I don't have to go into work because it's supposed to start snowing Friday night into Sunday morning. So it's supposed to work Saturday. Hoping I don't have to do that. I could kind of just sit with some more chai rooibos tea and look outside the window and enjoy the snow. And hope and hope against hope that these uh, that the CBA gets figured out. Uh, look at us being having so little to talk about baseball wise that we've resorted to the weather. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, even with, even with Mets legends, like there's a lot of stuff that we could talk about from the past, but it's that current aspect of the game is just, you know, it's, it really reminds me a lot of 2020, you know, when, when the season was locked out then because of COVID and it's it just like, you had to kind of, pull article ideas and content out of thin air. I remember, mm-hmm. you know, writing for Metsmerize at that point. It's like you were just writing about anything. And then you have the readers complaining to you like, well, well this is just such a random idea. And it's like, there's no baseball right now. Yeah. Like, what else are we supposed to do? Nothing. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing. Um, it's like, I can't write about, you know, I can't write about a trade they're making because there are no trades. Um, but uh, and even write about an injury because no one even knows. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's too much. Um, but yeah, so today uh, we were going to talk about Scott Casimir because his birthday is this week. Um, and I know that we've talked about Scott Casimir on the podcast here and there. Um, I think you guys have kind of heard my logic on the Mets trading him uh, back in 2004 for Victor Zambrano. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I fully believe that if he was on that 06 rotation, the Mets would have had an, enough to just squeak into the World Series there um, and maybe win the World Series. Um, but I actually was watching on YouTube. It was just like it, it had popped up on like my related videos or whatever um, about Rick and Keel, uh, you know, Cardinals pitcher turned outfielder. And also he was on the Mets and the Braves and the Nationals and the Royals. Um, and I think everyone knows the story about Rick Ankeel, Mike, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, tell me what you know about him. Tell me what you know about Rick Ankeel and what you remember about him. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously the first thing that comes to mind, the, my first memory of, of Rick Ankeel uh, was the 2000 playoffs um, where he just couldn't, he had, you know, this is where his, his case of the yips as a pitcher, um, you know, developed. And it's just one of those things looking back on that you like, you hate to see it for a player to see someone who just can't like do the basic thing in baseball. And that is throw the ball. (laughs) Um, Like it, it, it's really, it's really pretty sad. Um, But when you look back at the career that Rick and was able to put together, like you just can't have, the only feeling you can have for him is respect for what he has been able to do. Uh, he came up as a 19 year old for the St. Louis Cardinals was thrown into sort of the lion's den as a 20 year old in the 2000 playoffs. Um, and we were kind of talking about it before how, uh, you know, Tony LaRusa, who, you know, we objectively hate at least was able to uh, admit that he shouldn't have put a 20 year old in that uh, high leverage of a situation who knows how much of a, you know, of a factor that was in, in that meltdown. But I mean, he came back in 2007 as a position player, uh, mostly in center field. Um, he played all the outfield positions at one point, but I always think of him as a center fielder. Um, and he put together, you know, a decent career as a, as an outfielder. A lot of times he was a fourth outfielder, or even fifth outfielder for whatever team he was on. Um, but he had a couple full seasons with the Cardinals that were actually pretty good. Um, you know, he, one season, his second season as a, as an outfielder, he was actually quite good. He, um, he had a 120 OPS plus through 120 games. Uh, he hit 264, 337 on base, um, to hit 25 home runs. That was the most of his career. That's kind of when people realize like, Oh, this guy's got a little bit of pop. Uh, he also hit 21 doubles. So, um, eventually he meandered his way to the Mets for his last season, uh, in major league baseball in 2013, which, um, I feel like a lot of those guys end up playing their last season in professional baseball for the yeah. Mets, especially in that era. Yeah. Um, and you know, he, he didn't have a great season by any means. He only played, he actually only played in 20 games. Um, really? that's it. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm not a lot longer. It, it does feel like a lot longer and I'm not really even sure he was released by the Astros in May of 2013. And then he signed with the Mets four days later. So that was one of those bargain bin moves. Like, Hey, he hit 25 home runs once. Maybe he'll do yeah. it again. <laughs> Very Will Ponzi. Very Will Ponzi. Yeah. Like the fact that Ankiel had this background of a story Mm-hmm. He was. I wouldn't. Make, I wouldn't go so far as to say he was a household name, but he was de- definitely. He was a commodity, though. 
yeah, he was a recognizable name mm-hmm. that he was, you know, the, the team was hoping to catch lightning in a bottle, could sell to their fans. And uh, apparently he only played in 20 games. I thought it was a lot more than that, but I don't know <laughs> that era of baseball, like everything just really yeah. molds together. Yeah. Well, how many times have we said that in our episodes? Like, Oh, I thought it was more games than that. Or, Oh, what a Will Ponzi move. Like yeah. one thing that I've come to realize just in doing this podcast with you is like, if nothing else, the Wilpons were salespeople and they could, yeah. they could make you believe in a true pile of dung that like, Oh, this team's going to compete. <laughs> well, it's, it's like this, it's like this serum that they release on us of like, yeah. Like optimism against all odds mm-hmm. where like, you know, the Mets could even have had like an awful off season where they didn't really do much. You know, they lost X amount of players, but then like, and you can even be frustrated about it, but then, you know, spring training starts, comes to an end. And then you get this sense of optimism around you of like, your mind has been erased. You feel <laughs> like in your bones that the Mets all reason good. goes out the window. Yeah. Yeah. And then they go out there and they win opening day like they normally do. And you're like, this is it. Colin Cowgill is going to win the MVP award this year. (laughs) He is going to steal 30 bases. He's going to hit 30 home runs. He's going to hit over 300. And then by May, you're just like, well, I got got yet again. (laughs) Um, But you know, funny enough, that 2013 team with Ankeel on it had some like silver linings to it. That's true. Um, Mar- Marlon Bird was really good that year. You had that unreal start from John Buck, who had just come over in the hard <laughs> trade. Um, yeah. And then, you know, Matt Harvey had that great year. David Wright uh, was in the home run derby. I think he was an all star in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it was like, it was like, that was when the Mets were a little bit on the up and up, uh, where the rebuild was kind of coming to a close. Uh, you know, I think Zach Wheeler debuted that year. So you had like these pieces where it was kind of starting to, to come together. It wasn't that like bleakness of like 2010 where they were really like in the early stages of the rebuild, you know, and they, they just didn't have anything to look forward to. Um, yeah. But yeah. And when you, I mean, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the 2013 team and like, you're, you're right. It wasn't all bad. It, it's funny looking back because you know, that was the year the Mets had Daisuke Matsuzaka, um, yes. who I was like, who I was excited about. Dylan G got the ball on opening day, which was yeah. weird, but he had a good season. Um, so, like, they had Dylan G, Matt Harvey, John Neese, Jeremy Hefner, Zach Wheeler, Daisuke Matsuzaka. Like, those, I felt like even that year, I was like, you know, this team could kind of like cobble together something that was, that was okay. Wilmer Flores, uh, I think yep. made his debut. Um, he did. I was there. I was at his major league debut on his that is, birthday. That's he awesome. Debuted on his birthday. I remember uh, that. I do remember him debuting on his birthday. Yep. Uh, but I just remember how like there was quite a bit of hype around Wilmer Flores and he's, he's turned out obviously to be like a, a good player for sure. Um, but not, not exactly like the shortstop, I think that the Mets expected him to be, um, which is like, you know, which was fine. I mean, Wilmer Flores has, has written himself into Mets history in, in the best way possible, I would say. Um, 
he'll always be a guy that's fondly remembered. And I think no matter when he, like, like when he comes back to New York to play, whether, you know, as a diamond back giant, mm-hmm. like he, he always is going to get that, that heartfelt standing, you know, ovation. Like he's a guy that every Mets fan you ask loves just unconditionally. Um, yeah. But, but all that to say, all that to say, you know, I had kind of associated in my mind, at least Rick and Keel with, with sort of like the dread of like the, the really bad side of being a Mets fan, like the really sad and depressed side of it. <laughs> like for whatever reason, I thought he was one of those like 2011, 2010 guys when, when the team was really down in the dumps, yeah. um, you know, one of those like bargain bin will pond moves, which he was. But part, of, but part of a larger uh, group that was actually pretty talented. Make no mistake, though, the 2013 Mets did have a lot of flaws, and they, oh, yeah. were, they were, as I like to call it, a symptom of the Wilpons. You did have a lot of those guys that were on that team that the Mets were kind of getting at the twilight of their careers, you know, mm-hmm. like Kyle Farnsworth, or was he on the 2014 Mets? No, Farnsworth, I don't think Farnsworth was on that team. Jose Valverde definitely was, though. Um, and also Aaron Harang. Yeah. Harang on that team. Aaron uh, Harang. That's right. So, but, but yeah, it was, it was different. It wasn't like that. Like, it was a little bit more optimistic at that point. You know what? You want to hear something truly pathetic? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the video is not up anymore. And I check every like few months to see if it is. So like whenever it <laughs> popped into my mind, someone had uploaded a video in 2013 and the video was called fight the 2013 New York Mets. And it was like a highlight compilation of oh, the God. Mets from that year. Oh, boy. And I would sit at my computer and watch this video and like cry, <laughs> like watching it, like, like, like cry at this highlight reel of the 2013 Mets uh and god that is just such a pathetic I mean thing. that was um, that was such an era of the internet though where like you could find that kind of thing like the no one does that for the Mets anymore I don't think like if the Mets were super bad like yeah no one's making a highlight compilation anymore but like there were highlight compilations of everything I feel like totally. everything and anything yeah. from like yep. I, I felt like from like 2007 through to all the way to like even 2015 i feel like there was it there would be a highlight compilation of like the colorado rockies <laughs> you know like yeah i don't know maybe there is one of this season i think i should look that up let me see if there's a 2021 colorado rockies <laughs> it's like it's like Raymel Tapia just like hitting a home run that just squeaked <laughs> over the right field fence. Yeah, dude, I love my I, I love Raymel Tapia. He's, he's really a, he's dude, fun to watch. He is going to be a Met one day. I I don't know what makes me feel that but he is like <laughs> he is like a like a future Met in my opinion. Like he's a guy yeah. that the Mets are going to he's going to find his way to Queens. Future I'm Mets legend. Now. You've heard it here first. For sure, for sure. I mean, yeah, so, like, just a quick search. It's all, like, MLB.com, you know? Like, mm-hmm. there's no, like, Joe Schmo 217 on YouTube, <laughs> like, making those anymore. <laughs> but, hey, if this was 10 years ago, man, you would see, like, 
Aaron Cook 2010 highlights. <laughs> yeah, you know? right, right. <laughs> um, it's funny, but but yeah. So Rick Ankiel, let's let's talk about him for a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, you pretty much summed it up in a, in in a very concise way of like the career that Rick Ankiel had, and I think that's generally what people know about him is that he was this pitcher with a lot of potential and it kind of just unraveled for him and he was never able to get back to pitching because he had the yips and then he came back as an outfielder, but it was kind of nice seeing this little documentary. And if you guys look up just like Rick and on YouTube, it'll be like a 45 minute video. I think it aired on ESPN and I just sat down and watched it. Um, You know, this week or whatever, I was just really into watching like baseball content. I really like baseball doesn't exist videos. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. If you've seen that, Mike, mm-hmm. um, it's cool. Like, to, you know, I, I was watching one about this little league team from Chicago that were the U S champions in like 2014 and had their title stripped because there was some like zoning issue where they, you know, the, the thing was that they, they speculated they were like poaching from other areas or other neighborhoods of Chicago. Um, I was watching so like a mighty duck situation. Yeah, exactly. Adam uh, Adam sorry. Banks ends up on the on the Mighty Ducks. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was like that. It was like, <laughs> you know, and it all seems very like very arbitrary. Uh, I mean, these guys, these kids were still so good. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, if you guys just heard a squeak in the background, that was my cat jumping off the chair next to me and letting out a <laughs> meow. So uh, he always likes to make his mark, um, and now he's looking out the window, but. Uh, yeah, so so Ricky and Keel is from Port St. Lucie, Florida. Um, so he has like that little bit of that Mets connection kind of in his blood. Um, grew up in like a little bit of a dysfunctional family. Uh, yeah, he talks about how he like he did grow up like on the beach and he grew up, uh, you know, like his dad would be surfing, his mom would be doing, you know, whatever, like, uh, but he remembers going to the beach a lot. He remembers uh, always playing baseball. Like that was like his main thing. He loved playing baseball. Uh, and as he got older, he just, he got really good. You know, he came back from one school year to the next when he was in high school, throwing low eighties to like mid nineties. And he was just one of those guys. And I think that when you're just that talented like you just know like these athletes these pro athletes are just wired so differently than your average person Mm -hmm. like his thing was he said that when he was grad about to graduate or when he was like when he was thinking about his future when he was like a teenager uh he was like there were two options he's like i'm either going to go to the university of miami or i'm going to play baseball i'm going to get drafted and i'm going to play baseball and so he was selected by the St. Louis Cardinals and he ripped through their minor league system. As you said, he debuted when he was 19. Um, and by 20 years old, he was uh, pitching in the playoffs and it's just, it's crazy. Cause it's just like, he was so talented. He had this laser fastball, you know, he was throwing upper nineties, 98 miles an hour, 99, whatever at 20 years old, he had this Bugs Bunny curveball. Uh, you know, in the little documentary, they were saying, I forget who it was, but they were giving comparisons to that of Sandy Koufax, like the way that his delivery was, the way that his his curveball was. It was very similar to Sandy Koufax. I can see um, that. 
Yeah. I mean, they had kind of similar stature as well. They had kind of similar deliveries. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ankeel just, he was talking about how it was like, like having the yips was not something he ever dealt with. Um, like he just was like, he was like, when I was on the mound, I felt this sense of calm. Like I was the baddest, like I was the baddest motherfucker out there, you know, like you can't touch my pitches. Like I'm going to dominate you when I'm on the mound. Like he just had this, like this charisma, this confidence on the Hill. Like it just, you know, he was built for that kind of thing. But you also have to remember he was only 20. I mean, you know, I'm 26, you're 26. I still feel like a kid in a lot of respects. Yeah. I look back at being 20 and it's just like, absolutely a child. Yeah. You're just a child. And he even talks about like, you know, he grew up a huge Atlanta Braves fan because when he was growing up, the, the Marlins didn't exist, I guess. So he didn't have his hometown Marlins or Rays. So Atlanta is probably the closest team to him. So he grew up loving the Braves. And that was in the 90s, too, when the Braves were a really good team. So when he gets to the playoffs in, two, in 2000 in the NLDS, he's playing the Braves. So he's facing off against Greg Maddox in game one uh, or game two, whatever he pitched. Uh, and, you know, they have Chipper Jones on that team. They have Andrew Jones, you know, John Smoltz, Tom Glavin. It's guys that he grew up watching, and now he's playing against them. Um, you know, Mark McGuire, he said that he remembers, like, watching Mark McGuire, <laughs> and now Mark McGuire is his teammate, and they're sitting at dinner together, and yeah. he wants to ask Mark McGuire for his autograph. And <laughs> like, teammates. Um, you know, it's just like this surreal thing, right, where you're like, you're you're on the outside and then you're there and it's like these guys that are that are your idols are now your coworkers or now your opponents and right. uh, you know so it's a lot for a 20 year old kid to take in and uh you know the thing with Ankeel too is his foundation had cracks in it you know like his dad was would disappear and then show back up in his life um you know his dad would like physically assault his mom like he said that he remembers being like a kid and like his dad, like holding like a butcher knife up to his mom and her, like, like hearing it escalate. And he's like hiding under his bed, like, you know, not being able to do anything because he was a kid, you know, and um, he just remembers it wanting to be over. So he had this like crack in his foundation, you know, and I think you, you see a lot of baseball players that do a lot of athletes that do, they use baseball as their outlet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so Ankeel gets up there. I forget who their backup catcher was at that point, but their main catcher during the season was Mike Matheny. And so Ankeel had come up mid season or whatever. And his ERA was in the twos. I think he just, he really burst on the scene was great. Uh, and then Matheny hurt his hand before the playoffs. I think he like, he like sliced his hand open and he wasn't on the roster for the NLDS. So he was pitching to the backup catcher. He was really accustomed to Matheny. So there was a little bit of like wires crossed where uh, at one point, like he dropped a curveball and the catcher was expecting a fastball. And so there was just like a little bit of confusion, but and he'll actually start yeah. the game off. Well, he started pitching well to begin and, with. And, and I think it's, it's important to note that Matheny was like, I mean, he, he was one of the best defensive catchers in the league at that time and of his era. Uh, yeah. So it's definitely helpful for a, for a young pitcher 20 year old pitcher like Rick Ankeel to have someone like Matheny behind the plate. Um, and just as a quick aside as well, uh, did you know that Jesse Orozco was on that 2000 Cardinals team? No, I did not. 
idea. His age Orozco, 43 season. Yeah. Orozco was one of those guys that played for forever. Like, I remember ever 24 I remember, years. I remember playing like triple play like 2001 or like like a game from like 01, 02, 03 mm-hmm. or whatever. And like a 46 year old Orozco was like <laughs> on the Minnesota Twins. And it's just like, I always yep. thought of him as like this older player that was because he was on the 86 Mets. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Roscoe, that makes that's so crazy. You know, it's crazy yeah. to think that like Ankiel, who played for the Mets in 2013, which is not that long ago, played right. with Jesse Orozco, who was on the 86 team. It's just mm-hmm. very, you know, very, you know, you could actually like go all the way back to like, uh, you could actually go all the way back to like, the Mets history at that point. It's like Ankiel played with Orozco. Mm-hmm. Orozco played with Tom Seaver. Mm-hmm. Tom Seaver played with original 62 Mets. So it's, you know. Um, yeah. I, I don't remember which top series it was, but there was, there was a tops year where they did like, uh, like seven degrees of separation from like Mickey. Man- it's either Mickey Mantle or Babe Ruth or something. Um, and so on certain cards, they would have like, you know, something like that. Like Rick Ankiel played with Jesse Orozco, who played with, you know, blah, 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 who played with Babe Ruth. Um, and I, I, cool always, I always liked those. Yeah. yeah. That's a cool insert set. I like that. There's um on baseball reference, there is a feature. I forget what it's called, but it's like the same thing where it's like you can put in two players mm-hmm. and then it'll show you like the lineage of like, like that it'll show you like like you could put in like lasting's millage and babe ruth you mm-hmm. know and it'll be like lasting's millage played with um trying to name like like pedro martinez mm-hmm. pedro martinez played with so-and-so and then like it goes all the way back and then you 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 it figures out that connection between babe ruth and uh and lasting's millage and you could do two any two players anybody yeah yeah so I've done like Brooks Pounders and like Walter Johnson, like, they're, they're you know. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so I, back to Ankiel. So anyway, he 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 melts down during this game where he like he throws a pitch and it sails over the catcher's head. And I think it was a it was like a beat reporter or some sort of journalist was was talking about it being at the game, and they were saying that it just it felt different. Like it didn't feel like, all right, you know, like wild pitch, whatever, you know, no problem. It was like, you could sense that Ankiel was scared. Like you could sense that he was like, it was a concern of his, you know? Mm. And so he ends up like, like, I think the the, the Cardinals were up like six, nothing. Um, He had walked Greg Maddox earlier in the inning where, before he threw the wild pitch. And that might've been what set him off. Like, he walked Greg Maddox on four pitches or five pitches. And then like, then he starts being wild. Braves get back into the game on these wild pitches and these, these, these hits. And like, I think they ended up maybe tying the game or whatever, but he gets pulled from the game after the game. He's just like, I'm not really concerned about it. I'm sorry. I let the team down. I feel bad about that, but you know, it's not a concern. And then the Cardinals ended up sweeping the Braves, I think in that series. So it was like, He's partying in the locker room. He's not really thinking about it. And then he goes out against the Mets in the NLCS and like the same thing happens. And like, at this point he's like concerned, like, but 
you know, that off season, he, he goes with one of his teammates to California and like, you know, the relaxing, he just wanted to get away from baseball. And so he wanted to like, kind of take this little like soul search to like, kind of, you mm-hmm. know, clear his mind and gear up for the 2001 season. So it, you know, it starts happening again in 2001. Uh, his agent is Scott Boris, who, Scott Boris, I guess at some point, I don't know if it was the previous off season or earlier in the 2001 season mentions that he has a uh, mental health coach, you know, who, you know, might be of assistance to Rick. Rick doesn't want to see him at first, um, you know, and then ultimately does. um, But his issues are still kind of happening. And so he's even starts to resort resorts to like drinking before games. Like he'll have like, you know, vodka and like his Gatorade bottle. And it's like, he talks about how it it had helped. You know, there was one game where he went out there and he just dominated, you know, they kind of took the edge off and he told his mental health coach about it. And he was like, all right, you know, like you got to do what you got to do, but you know, you just have to know that this is not a solution. Like this is not Mm -hmm. a permanent fix, you know? And so the next game or whatever, Rick goes out there, had drank vodka before the game and he starts melting down again. And so like, then it, it turns into this thing of like, you know, he gets sent down to the minors and then he's throwing so much that he's just trying to figure it out. You know, he's just trying to get over this mental hurdle and he ends up hurting his arm, but he pitches through it. And then ultimately he blows his arm out and he misses significant time. I think 2004, he started to work his way back. And then after like failed attempts, he just, he's not getting it together. He basically just like calls it quits. Um, like, I, I don't know if it was in spring training maybe or whatever it was, but he said that he remembers going into Tony LaRusso's office. Um, and Tony LaRusso and, and Ankeel actually had like a, like a, like a father son relationship or like this like familial relationship. And he just remembers telling like uh, Tony LaRusso, like, I, I can't do this anymore. Like, and Tony just being like, okay, like, well, what's now? He's like, well, I'm going to go home. Like, I'm, I'm hanging it up. And so he goes home and he says, you remember sitting on his couch and Scott Boris calls him. And he says, how would you feel about being an outfielder? And Rick is like, Scott, like, what don't you understand? Like, I just <laughs> retired. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm done with baseball, you know, this and that. So mm-hmm. Scott goes, I want you to think about it. You let me know. So I guess like pretty short after he was like, this is crazy. Like I've never thought about this, you know, but fuck it. We're going to do it. He calls Scott Boris. And then I guess he, I don't know if he like had gotten in touch with someone from this, from the St. Louis Cardinals organization, but they basically like assured him, they were like, you know, this is what you want to do. Like if you want to be an outfielder, like we support you a hundred percent you know, show up at the ballpark tomorrow and young will start your journey. You're now Rick Ankiel, the outfielder and Rick's wife at the time or girlfriend or whatever. I think it's his wife now, but she pretty much just like supported him. She was like, you know, if you want to do this, like you should do this. Um, but I don't think anybody really thought that he was going to get back to the major leagues. It's like, mm-hmm. it's such a, it's such a like unorthodox and also like improbable route back to the majors. It's like, Oh yeah. I mean, could you imagine, could you imagine if uh, a player like Rick and Keel came through in like today's game, like he would be, yeah. everyone would be clamoring for him to be a two way player because of what Shohei Otani has done 
and proven to be like to be able to do. I feel like Rick and Keel would very much be in the same camp. I mean, he had the stuff yeah. at one point. He could do it. Maybe make a switch to the bullpen or something like that. You know what I mean? And then and then have him play, you know, left field every other day. Uh, you know, I, I feel like I feel like when you come across an athlete like that, you know, obviously they're an, uh, a super a supremely talented athlete like Ankiel will get more chances uh, than than someone who's maybe not as physically gifted. Um, because, I mean, it's so tantalizing when you see like what what kind of repertoire that that person has. Uh, yeah. But uh, so obviously, you know, that that helps out Rick Ankiel's case. But the fact that he was able to commit to the to the outfield experiment like that, um, you know, it, it, especially in a time when like that just I, I, I think it's pretty unprecedented in modern baseball for anybody to make that kind of switch um, yeah. unless they're going from being a position player to being a pitcher. Like, I feel like that's a little bit more common. Um, yeah. Like, like Jacob deGrom being the college shortstop becoming a pitcher in, in the, you know, in the Mets minor league organization. Um, but yeah, I mean, huge props to being able to hit <laughs> major league level stuff um after throwing it <laughs> totally yeah and, and i mean so like i agree like rick Ankiel was really the, the kind of person who like if it was going to happen for anybody like it really like it makes sense that it happened for him and he was a pretty good hitter too like he yeah like even when he was like a pitcher he still hit pretty well but you know they talk about the documentary where they were like you know i mean he was coming back i guess at this point in oh five so he was like our age. So he was like 26. Um, and he had to start off at like, like a ball, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but they talk about like how it was a really big learning curve because when you're a pitcher, like you're not in the batting cages like you are as a hitter. So like he wasn't like regularly hitting for years, probably since he was in high school, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, but you know, he had the drive and he just had the ambition. He really believed that he could do it. And so he, you know, starts working his way up and he's, he's hitting single a pitching well, and then he gets up to double a and he's still hitting really well. And then I think at one level of the minors, it was either double a or triple a, he had like 32 home runs or something like that. So then it got to the point where it was like, now he's kind of knocking at the door again. Like it's not even just like this mm-hmm. pipe dream. It's like he might make it back as an outfielder. And then sure enough, he gets called back up in 2007 as an outfielder. Six years since, or like maybe three years. There was, it was like a long time between where he had been a pitcher and he last pitched in his MLB game to him debuting. It was like, like between three and six years or so. Um, and the Cardinals fans just really embraced him. And it was just like, so awesome to see. It was like, they really just like loved him so much. He got like this standing ovation. And, and Tony LaRusso talks about how like, he doesn't remember anybody getting called up like that, that got such a warm reception from like their fan base. Yeah. Um, and then he goes and he hits a home run in his first game back as a, as like an outfielder. Um, like that's just poetry, you know? Yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> Um, you know, and then obviously from there, it's like, we all know like what happens. Like he played for the Cardinals for a few years. He had some good stats he put up. 
He had an absolute hose as an arm from the outfield, um, mm. gunning guys down. Uh, just really, really uh, like great athlete. Um, and then he goes on and he pitches, you know, he plays for the Mets uh, at the end of his career. He kind of bounced around. And so, but that's the story of Rick and Keel. And it is beautiful that he was able to do that. But a part of me, and I'm sure he thinks about it too. Like there was even a part of the documentary where like he's watching his meltdown of mm-hmm. in, like his playoffs in 2000. And it's like, you can see the pain in his eyes. And like, at one point he even like shuts the laptop. Cause he's just like, he can't watch it anymore. Um, yeah. But you kind of just think about like what could have been with him. Right. Where he was like, there was, there was actual talks of him, like being the next best pitcher ever. Like mm-hmm. he was all over magazine covers, newspapers. Like he was in the spotlight more than like anybody. He was a phenom. Um, and then it just kind of was like, he kind just of, he always talks about apart. it as like, he talks about it as like someone dangling a carrot in front of him. Like, mm. where he's like, you're in this tunnel, you could see this carrot. And then it like, you're so close and you can almost taste it. And then it's kind of ripped away from you. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it is like, I think people even remember him more so because he did come back as an outfielder, you know, it's like he could have melted down like that and retired. And then they, they call him up to be an outfielder. And he's like, you can shove it up your ass. Like I'm done, you know, but, and then people really wouldn't have remembered him, but it's like him coming back as an outfielder, I think kind of just like increased his legacy almost. Yeah. And when you, you know, when you, when you put his story in context to all, like to, in context of like every major league baseball player, like if you're just like perusing baseball reference or whatever, and you've never heard of Rick and Keel in your life and you look at his baseball reference page and you like the first thing it shows is standard batting, you know, you're like, okay, he couldn't figure it out for the first few years. And then he came back, he was 27 years old. He was still young and had a solid career after that. Um, but no, there's so much more to it. The fact that those first few years, he was a pitcher. Um, he, you know, he had this monumental, you know, meltdown. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that like numbers can't really tell a story. Um, but at the same time, it's like, when you just take a, take a look at his, at his stats, you're like, you know, if, if you were to ask anybody who was, you know, a high school baseball player, if you're going to play 11 years in the major leagues, you're going to hit 240 and have an OPS plus of like right around a hundred. Most people would be like, I'd take it. You'd want to be yeah. better, but like you'd take it. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's, it's those kinds of things that, you know, really make baseball fun and like that kind of story stuff. Like, I don't know. Uh, a guy like Rick Ankeel is is what makes me really you know love the game that much more you know totally and like i mean that's really what mets legends is about anyway right it's about these like unheralded guys that that kind of make up like why baseball is so beautiful you know it's like like scott rice debuting as a 33 year old relief pitcher after you know toiling around in the minor leagues for a decade plus you know riding shitty buses across the country eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches getting paid you know absolute shekels and just that drive that you know i i know i'm gonna get there you know like Mm -hmm. i know i'm gonna get there even though my time is running out i'm getting these opportunities to play i'm gonna get there and then coming into spring training with the mets and like getting that call is just like 
And yeah, Scott Rice pitched in two years for the Mets and that was it. But it's like, he made it like he made it to the major leagues and he was a good pitcher, you know, like, but yeah, you're right. It's like that poetic aspect of the game is what makes it so beautiful. It's like, sure. Like, it's amazing to see Mike Trout, you know, put on a clinic every time he goes out there. Like, yeah, you know, that's, that's but, great. But then there's also these other guys like the Ankiels who had that talent level, you know, like a Mike Trout as a mm-hmm. pitcher, you know, like had this like like expectation of like, I'm going to be the next greatest pitcher ever. I'm going to be the next Tom Seaver. I'm going to be the next so-and-so. And then like having that ripped away from you, but then like still persevering to get back there at a completely different position. Like, it's just, it's just amazing. It just like, it shows how like the belief in yourself, but also like that just pure talent, just like, like, of like, it's not an easy thing to do. And he did it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, So yeah, I mean, props, props to Rick and Keel. Um, I'll have to go check out that, that documentary. Um, yeah, I think really I think good. we should maybe link it when we uh, when we put the the pot out there on the on the Twitter sphere. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. But that's Rick and Keel's story, and I, you know I, I can get on my soapbox any day to talk about how Scott Casimir would have been a great 2006 Met, but <laughs> you know I felt that since Rick and Keel was a Met and uh, had that epic meltdown against the Mets that he did fit into the criteria of what we're talking about. Totally. So, uh, so that's Rick and Keel. Um, and I'll link the, like you said, I'll link the, the YouTube video in the description of our, uh, our podcast. So you'll see it on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and it's definitely worth watching. Even if it's something you watch before you go to bed, it's not a long time commitment and it's really a lot of content in that like 45 minutes. So uh, shout out to Rick and Keel always a fan of yours and always will be. Um, but yeah. Uh, to remember some guys. Yeah. Let's conclude with remembering some guys. All right. Uh, I've been looking forward to this one since we're talking about the 2000 era. Um, my guy's going to be, you know, since I'm rooting for the chiefs these days, Pat Mahomes senior. Okay. Pat Mahomes senior. Uh, that's a good one. Um, I remember like having his cards as a kid mm-hmm. and uh, then when Patrick Mahomes became a quarterback, it was that cool connection. Yeah. Um, I'm going to remember a pitcher from the nineties, Robert person, <laughs> Robert person. He was actually, he is a person. <laughs> I always thought his name was so silly. Cause like, <laughs> here's another one. I had his card and I was like, this guy's name is Robert person. It was like so funny, yeah. but he actually helped get the Mets John Olrude. He was in the trade that the Mets, like he was part of the package that the Mets gave to the Blue Jays for John Olrude. So nice. Um, Robert Person is my guy. That's great. Yeah. Cool. All right. Awesome. We'll see you guys next time. Yeah. Sounds good. Cheers.